Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the wonderful occasion of speaking with Anna Henning. Anna is also known as Breakfast of Champignons in her local foraging community and on Instagram. She has been hunting fungi in the woods of central Massachusetts and eastern Connecticut for over five years, gathering edible and medicinal mushrooms, along with knowledge and friends along the way. To Anna, mushrooms are so much more than just mushrooms. They are art, sources of inspiration, teachers, and a source of endless fascination from a scientific perspective. She brings a deep respect for the natural world to all of her projects and feels that each one is like a collaboration between herself and nature. As so many mycophiles on social media already know, Anna is a seemingly infinite wellspring of scientific information about fungi. In addition to that knowledge of mycology, she also has an incredible knowledge of etymology, or the science of language and where it comes from. All of this brain power translates to a social media presence that never fails to teach me something new and inspires us all to always be looking and learning. Anna, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited and honored to be here. Oh, no, the honor is all mine. The honor is all <laughs> mine. I've followed you for a long time on social media through, you know, page takedowns and everything else that's happened. Uh, we And we can get into that or not get into that. You know, I know that was a that was a thing. And his presence was huge. And then Instagram took her down. But now she's back. <laughs> I like to call it breakfast 1.0. And now we're in breakfast 2.0. Breakfast 2.0, same same <laughs> great breakfast. And we can maybe go over like a little bit on where you're from, education, all that good stuff. Sure. Um, where I came from. So I am from Cape Cod, which is in Massachusetts. It's a peninsula out in the water. It, it was originally a fishing village back in the day, artist community. It's a very wild space. It is essentially a sandbar. And it's very, very isolated and very, very rural. Most people know it as a... Um, vacation destination, but that's only three right. or four months of the year. For the rest of us, it is uh, a very small, quiet community. There's no grocery store in my town, um, no stoplights, none of that stuff. It's it's very rural. Um, I had 27 people in my graduating class at my public high school. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So I, I come from a very, I think, unique background in that sense. And then I also come from a unique background in the sense that my parents are both from Florida or, or they came from Florida to here. Um, and my father was a mechanic and a professional motorcycle racer. So I grew up um, on racetracks around the country and around New England and even sometimes around the world. There was a lot of nature there because we were sort of free ranged. Um, yeah. My dad would get on his motorcycle and then be like, see ya. And, uh, <laughs> and we would just sort of like <laughs> play in the creek and catch crawfish or um, try to make things out of stuff we found on the ground. And uh, it, was, it was very wild. And then back at home, it was also very wild because we didn't have cable and we didn't have, um, you know, a neighborhood of kids. I, I, I lived in a big field. Um, and I remember as a child, I didn't know it was a mushroom, but looking back, I know now we have um, earth stars here on the Cape. They love the sandy soil. And right. we used to love playing with them and puffing the spores out of them. <laughs> uh, we had no idea what they were. But that, that was my very first connection to uh, the world of mushrooms that I, I later reconnected to in adulthood, um, like you said, about, about five or six years ago. Wow, that's fascinating. And it's interesting <laughs> that in 
that dynamic of having your father be a motorcycle racer that you didn't kind of go that direction where you didn't become like a grease monkey. Maybe you are. Hey, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say you don't know I, how to turn a wrench. I uh, I do know how to. I do know how to fix some stuff. I took shop and metals and all those courses in high school, and I can change my brakes and all that stuff. But um, honestly, the joke has always been like, I had a dirt bike and I wanted a pony. <laughs> <laughs> so you were you were a tomboy by circumstance, maybe, and and not necessarily. Precise. No, exactly. Sure. I have I have two brothers, older and younger. Um, okay. And they of course were jazzed, and I. Yeah, I mean, I grew up. I love to play with fire and uh, blow who stuff doesn't? up and oh, <laughs> and chop things down. And I definitely have like a um, anything you can do, I can do better sort of mentality. I think from from that upbringing. Um, Good. And yeah, it's kind of it's kind of inspired me to be very brave. And I think I think that's one of my best qualities is my bravery. Maybe hubris at times. <laughs> <laughs> bravery bordering on hubris. Hey, bravery is something that's it incredibly important, especially when we're talking about forging into new topics and new subjects, like some of the stuff we're going to cover today. You know, you got to be brave. You got to have a little mental courage. Um, Absolutely. So that kind of, yeah, your introduction with mushrooms came through those early days with Earth Stars. Now, as you're growing up, you know, you're blowing things up, you're setting things on fire. No, um, so <laughs> was it something you took in school or was it some course or maybe a mentor or someone that came along that had you reconnect with fungi, uh, you know, within the past few years? No. So uh, I've remarked upon this many times. I am totally surprised that this is something I got into and not only got into, but stuck with. It, it took me completely by surprise. I never would have thought that mushrooms would have been something I was interested in. Uh, when I went into academics, finally, I, I had sort of refused to go to college when I was in high school, even though I did very, very well in school. Um, and then my father uh, as I mentioned, was a motorcycle racer and he got into a terrible accident. He got a traumatic brain injury and he was in a coma and he had to relearn everything, how to walk and talk. And um, wow. he's not the, he's not the same to this day. Um, it's, it's pretty severe. But when that happened, I sort of thought, oh, brains are insanely incredible. Like <laughs> this guy got got hit on the head and now he's someone else. Um, and that was fascinating to me. So I chose to go to school um, to study psychology, uh, which is a science. They call it a soft science, uh, but it is a science. And I, I went down that path for many years. I like to help people. I've been working with kids since I was in high school of varying needs and um, abilities. And um, I kind of saw myself actually going into teaching or counseling of some sort. Right. Um, but ultimately, something that frustrated me about that world was that there weren't any answers. Ultimately, the answers they had sort of came back to oh, take this pill or um, get uh, this diagnosis. Right. And, and even when it came to pills, they would say, just so you know, we actually aren't really sure how this works. Um, oh, but we know that it we know that it sort of works and it's got all these side effects and everything. So I didn't know it then, but I was still interested in helping people and still interested in how we work. You mentioned before, you know, oh, maybe you are a grease monkey. I, I like to think I went in a different direction of my father and my brothers are really interested in how mechanics work and how engines work. And I'm really fascinated with how we work and how yeah. society works and how we connect. And um, I think 
I made a shift at some point away from the traditional path of understanding psychology and people and relationships and connections and all that into I guess what I defined for myself and I kind of I kind of um, withdrew from that world and and went off into the woods and yeah during that time was when I think I pulled back from focusing on other people and I started to really focus on myself through necessity. Uh, I was very isolated. I was living off Cape at that point. I was in a relationship that wasn't going the way that I wanted it to. And Mm -hmm. I was looking, I was looking for answers. I was actually pretty troubled at that time. And I, um, also had all these dogs <laughs> because I rescue <laughs> cattle dogs, which is a whole other podcast. In so you, had a, you had a dog gang. <laughs> I had a dog gang. I always, I, so I have two of my own and I have a revolving third or up to four or five sometimes if I have puppies, but they're these working dogs and they require a lot of stimulation. Right. Um, so I would end up sort of going further and further out away from people where these dogs could run around off leash and get their willies out. And when I was out there and my my brain was sort of like spinning over like, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing, you know, with my relationship? What am I doing? All these questions that I think most of us have and they maybe keep us up at night or whatever. I was out in the forest and I started to just notice things. I remember the very first mushroom I ever noticed during this time was um, a ladyporus sulfurius, which is the chicken of the woods. It's like... Uh, you know, bright orange. How can you miss it? Yeah, exactly. And I think my dog stepped on it and ruined it. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I I remember noticing that and I remember taking a picture of it. And I was just, I was just, it caught my attention in a way. And that was the moment for me. You ask sort of like, was there a person or a moment? To me, that was the moment where my attention was so captured by this thing in nature that it pulled me out of my my troubles honestly and and from that point forward i spent more and more time in nature kneeling in the dirt um you know uh turning over rocks um just becoming really curious and i just started to notice this feeling in me that i hadn't felt in decades which was this curiosity and excitement um it it was a feeling of like being a kid again Mm. Yeah, I don't know if you've experienced that. Absolutely, <laughs> Every, everything you're saying, I feel like resonates with me, and I think it's really interesting the path you've taken, where you're able to verbalize and you kind of have that background in psychology and understanding. Yeah, not necessarily the inner workings of a machine, but the inner workings of humans and how we operate well enough to kind of see how how nature and that connection in a space where you can be as big as you want to be, think any thought that you want to think you're able to bounce your energy and you're kind of bouncing your energy off of nature and finding answers. And I, I'm a really big believer in the ability of being out in nature by yourself to really kind of clear your head, also kind of purify your spirit. It's a, it's been a recurring theme in almost all my podcasts is that the therapeutic benefits of being out in nature. And then also to me, kind of the spiritual, the connection you feel, which is is therapeutic. You know, as humans, we all need that connection to greater source, to something greater than ourselves. When you're out in nature, you feel that. You feel the interconnectivity of things. And it's funny because you're kind of talking about how you're deriving, you know, your own path. It's like you're maybe developing the school of 
nature therapy or or woods therapy or something because there's somatic therapy talk therapy all that it's like maybe we can start nature like walk in the woods therapy let's make that a thing yeah i I really believe in that um you were talking about energy and something that i think was so crucial to me a turning point for getting me hooked into this world and for setting me on a path to um becoming who I am today versus who I was six years ago has a lot to do with energy and it's hard to explain. It's really a a feeling thing. I'm an extremely sensitive person. And when I'm in the woods, and this is something I sort of look back on and understand uh, in hindsight, but also feel in the moment now that I know it exists, there is a very different energy exchange when you're in the forest. And Mm. For myself, I work with people. I'm a bartender. I worked in mental health as a as a counselor. And when you're around people, there's an energy exchange, whether you like it or not. Right. And um, or when I'm in the forest, uh, the energy exchange is very, very different. The I believe there is a lot of energy just in the forest. It exists. It's coming off the plants. It's, you know, and not even in like a woo woo way. Like it's just conservation of energy. Like it exists when we burn a tree, energy comes out of it as fire. You know, you can look good at it from a scientific point of view too, but I really, and obviously there's life force because a tree can be alive or it can be dead. So, um, there, there is an energy there and it doesn't ask anything from you. Right. And it, gives you something if you can slow down and calm down and open yourself up to receive it. There's there's no people around. Um, if you're someone who's sensitive like me and you're um, very vulnerable to uh, absorbing or being aware of or hypersensitive in my case to the feelings and emotions and needs and wants of others, that can drain you. And being, Absolutely. Yeah, and being in the forest um is is sort of like a buffer from that energy there's nothing wrong with that energy if you're a mom or a dad and you know you freely give that to your kids but or if you work in an industry or are caregiving in some way that that's there's nothing wrong with giving that out but you need to have a place where um maybe you can have a respite from that as well and in nature we can not only have a respite from it but in, I find that nature gives you something back. And for me, what it gave me back was the connection to the curious childlike part of my brain. Um, And that was the moment that set me on the path to where I am now, which is such a better place. I I feel like a completely different person than I was five or six years ago, to be honest. So not only is it kind of recharging your own vital energy, because I think a lot of people experience that. And I think a lot of people are realizing maybe they're more sensitive than they're taught to think, or they're more sensitive than they than they had originally thought. And and you don't realize how much energy and stuff you're picking up throughout the day, interactions with people. You know, like you're saying, there is always an energy exchange and we don't realize how much that affects us. You know, my partner and I always talk about the cords that you put out, the energetic Mm -hmm. cords you put out when you talk to people or you get involved with someone or you get involved in a project. There's like these energetic cords that connect you to that thing. You know, sometimes intentionally or otherwise, people take more of of your energy than they're giving back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard for 
especially people who are empathic, people that want to help to realize when they are getting drained and they need to set up a boundary. So it's great to have a place where you can go and kind of relieve yourself of all those energetic commitments, get recharged by something that can receive you completely. You know, nature is big enough where you're never going to take away everything. You know, there's going to be always enough energy to give back to you and juice you up and you can be, you know, however big as you want to be in the forest. And it really is that chance to recuperate. But then it's interesting to pair that with it's also giving not only that energy, but giving you something more. Uh, and in your case, it's a connection to, to you know, kingdom fungi, but also plant. I mean, it's giving you a connection to curiosity. And, and I find a lot of myself in your story because I used to work in kind of corporate America, had a standard nine to five job, was not connected to nature at all. I mean, I also grew up in a slightly rural environment, not 27 people in my class, but a slightly mm -hmm. rural environment. I kind of ran away from that thinking I need to get into a more urban environment. And that's, you know, where things happen, where you make money, all that kind of thing. But you lose this vital connection with nature that I think so many people have lost. And until you make the choice to get out there, and reconnect, you don't realize what an effect it is, how these subtler energies, what we're talking about, like you it could be considered woo woo, but until you're out in it, you realize you know, it's not and you feel it and it's a it's something tangible. And I think that foraging and mushrooms in particular are an amazing vector for that because in our hyper, you know, stimulating world, having a purpose to go outside and connect with nature makes it easier to spend more time in the woods and then slowly kind of inoculates you or gets you more used to being outside and wanting to be outside. Um, so that's my spirit. And I think this is all really important to cover because we are in the era of, you know, understanding mental health and understanding how important it is to be able to disconnect from the constant demands. I mean, we're talking about energy of interactions between people. Social media takes your energy. And like, there's so many things that can plug in and just drain you energetically that it should probably be mandatory that children <laughs> and now adults are trained to like, you need to go out in the woods three hours a week at least, like you just need it to be a better human being. I'm all for that. I'm all for that sort of regulation. <laughs> what a preferred kind of therapy to what you experienced, which was pharmacological therapy, which, <laughs> you know, I think we've all, or a lot of people have come to realize the limitations of that. You know, I think there are instances where it's effective, but as a holistic kind of therapy that really treats underlying issues and really treats the human being, not the symptoms they're having, I think it doesn't answer those questions. So maybe Anna's nature therapy is really the next step. I am down to do Anna's nature <laughs> therapy. Um, and I just want to say when it comes to pharmaceutical interventions, I absolutely believe there's a time and a place for it. And there's absolutely right. no shame. Not that I think that you're saying that, but I, I believe there's absolutely no shame in um, using medication to help you through difficulties truthfully, we can get to such a place with our wounding, with whatever's happened to us, with whatever we're dealing with. Truthfully, environmental circumstances can affect our physiological being and our, our chemistry. So if you're in a situation where it's so dire that you can't get through the day or you can't imagine continuing on, um, medication can be super helpful in getting you to a place of homeostasis yeah. and stability. Um, right. So I definitely believe in that. As a whole, when it comes to pharmaceuticals, I really believe that Western medicine is so good at keeping us alive. <laughs> And and I and I love it for that. If you have um, if you have a traumatic brain injury and you need to be kept alive with Western medicine, amen. If you are a person 
who has trauma, for example, um, which turns out is most people, um, then taking a pill is might make you forget, but it's not going to heal you. And right. and when I say Western medicine keeps us alive, I truly believe that surviving is not the goal. That thriving is the goal, and and being uh, fully alive and fully yourself and as a whole human, where um, you can access every part of you, even the even the hurting parts, even the damaged parts, even the parts that you really really don't want to look at. Uh, where you, that to me is being truly alive. And that's where the alternative paths, I think, are so, so important for getting beyond just surviving, for getting beyond just um, doing what's expected of us. And I think even just doing what's expected of us gets people down sometimes that they think they need to be more and do more and have more. And when you're in the forest, one of my favorite things about being in the forest um, as a woman who's getting older and uh, has societal pressures is I forget that I'm something that people want to look at. I forget that I have a body. <laughs> I forget those expectations. Right. I forget what I look like. And honestly, that is such a huge blessing. It's just to like forget that you have a body for a little while in the sense that there's expectations on people's bodies. Yeah. Um, there's expectations to look away or be away. And when you're in the forest, that all falls away. The expectations are so basic. Be a good person. Don't, <laughs> don't set a forest fire. Don't leave your garbage on the ground. Don't be destructive. And those are so easy to fulfill. And then beyond that, you can show up however you want to show up. Like you said, as big as you want to be or as small as you want to be, you can just show up. And I heard you mention earlier being alone in nature. And I think that's really key. And yeah. I, I know there's a lot of folks who feel afraid about being alone in nature, but I saw some statistics recently that I can't quote off the top of my head, uh, but it was about how much safer women are in the forest alone than they are. I think it may have been our mutual friend, Lindley, yeah. I think made yeah. a post about that, about being safer in the forest. We love you, Lindley. Um, That's her. Yeah. yeah and, and as you're talking about that, it makes me think of like when you're out in nature by yourself for a few hours, you kind of weave into that greater tapestry of the consciousness of the whole forest. You're not thinking of yourself as a human body. You're like in tune to all of the other conscious energy around you. And it really is a beautiful thing because our modern culture, and it is hyper-individualistic, hyper-based on ego and your individual self and what you look like and all that. Yeah. So we need yeah. the reprieve from that. I think that's a really, really beautiful consideration really there's um, there's something to be said for being alone in the right context i was very lonely for a long time and when i went out into nature and i was truly alone right. my loneliness felt perfect it felt right that's big is the difference between being alone and being lonely yeah you know you had the opportunity to be alone ostensibly without devices as a young kid, and this is, you know, this is kind of taking us down a different track, but I feel like that's something that a lot of kids as they're developing now, having friends and family who have young kids, they don't really get to spend enough time alone. And I think that is really key in developing imagination and developing your own critical capacities and your own relationship with the world around you is to not have a device in front of you or not being constantly stimulated. So you get so comfortable with being alone. Exactly. So you, without realizing it, you're talking a little bit about attachment theory, which is this concept that 
gets solidified very, very early in childhood. Um, if you imagine your parental figure as this sort of uh, central pillar and the child can hopefully be secure. That's the main category. Secure attachment is you know that your parent is there and you can go and you can come and they're always going to be there and you'll be safe. And if you need them, they'll be there. Uh, and that is the ideal. Uh, that's the, the interior state that we all want to be in is having this secure attachment and feeling safe. That is the definition of safety. And that's where we get our idea of safety. Now, for most of us, we didn't grow up with a secure attachment style. We might have grown up with an avoidant attachment style, or we might have grown up with a uh, anxious attachment style. That's the one I have. I'm working through it. Uh, <laughs> and that is, you know, when that sense of safety isn't there or it's unpredictable or um, sometimes, like I said, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. And so it, that informs your outlook of the entire world and it informs your, your sense of self in the world. And I view going out in nature as reparenting yourself. So, wow. you know, we can't revisit our childhood. We can't, uh, as much as we want to hold grudges against our parents or whatever, it turns out we're their age now. And <laughs> <laughs> they were just they were just doing the best they could tall children doing the best that they could and now we are tall children um doing the best that we can and that can give us a lot of compassion for them so we can we can let that go and forgive them but at the same time we all are tall children we still have this child inside of us that needs attention and needs to be seen and needs to be heard and needs to be treated in a way that's going to make them feel safe. And that is something we can absolutely do for ourselves. And that is something that nature can help us do. We can go there and be alone and not be activated by your interactions with other people, not be activated by, like you said, the um, expectations of society. We can sort of take all that off and be sort of psychologically or emotionally naked out there and be totally safe because the trees aren't going to judge us and the salamanders right. aren't going to take advantage of us. And it's, it's just such an amazing testing ground for going out there and getting used to feeling your feelings and talking to yourself and telling yourself you're safe and being curious and asking questions about, is the world, is the world really the way that I think it is? Maybe it's not. And that's where it all starts. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not what I think it is. And in that model, I mean, it is mother nature that kind of fits perfectly <laughs> as you go back to the mother, the, the original mother. And yeah, I, I think it is a place where people tend to have a lot more introspection and to ask those questions that we might be scared to ask. Otherwise, we know people can't hear our thoughts, but sometimes you don't want to think certain things in the context of being around other people. And so it really gives you a chance to explore your your own inner world in yes. in a way that, yeah, a lot of us might miss out if we didn't have that kind of safe pillar and that can show up in a lot of ways, like you're saying, you know, whether it's just a parent that wasn't there a lot because they were working, whatever the case may be. Um, whatever it may be. Maybe they were dealing with their own mental health challenges. Maybe they were working a lot. Maybe they were had a chronic illness. Maybe they had an addiction. Maybe there was divorce. These are all things that count as trauma um, right. for, for children and yeah. affect you later in life. You can't go back or you can't apply the same things you were missing early in life right now in, you know, apply them in a much higher quantity and somehow repair that damage. No, you need to find another methodology and what you're talking about, reconnecting with nature, maybe one of those tools that, that is helping us work through some of that trauma in a way that's productive and not trying to relive the past or repair the past. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's always the balance is like we're, we're trying to live in the moment uh, but acknowledge that there are other times that exist. We're not 
denying or suppressing or burying any of our feelings or uh, the experiences that we've had. We want to validate those. We want to acknowledge them. We want to say, I see you, I hear you. This happened to you, to ourselves and to others. And that's where grounding really comes in. Uh, grounding is a technique of helping you really be in the here and now and in the present and in your body. And that's, again, a thing that nature can help you do because it involves accessing your senses, touch, feel, uh, smell, sight, sound, all those things. And being in nature, I mean, we keep kind of talking about the corporate world and everything and and society, and there's really a lot of no touching, and especially now. Uh, (laughs) No, don't touch that. Um, There's a lot of rules, and there's a lot of societal rules and expectations. And just to keep hammering this home, in nature, there are just, there's no rules. It's wild. And there's a part of us that is still wild. And technically it's called the amygdala. It's, it's the lizard part of our brain. Uh, we, you know, we are like, we have these portions of our brain that are associated with our very prehistoric selves. Right. And, and those are the parts that get activated when we are feeling emotional or afraid or scared because they help us survive. And we would not be here as a species if it wasn't for them. So we can be super grateful for them. Um, But at the same time, we have our higher brains, which we can thank for things like language and connecting and cars and the stock market, if you're into that, and uh, inventions and all those things that make us uniquely human. And that's where our rational thinking comes in. And when we ground, we are sort of integrating all of those things together yeah, and, and we can, you can touch a tree and you can really be in your body in that moment connecting to that thing. Um, or you can smell a cottonwood bud or you can, um, you know, to get down on the ground and, and like I'm sure you've done, like lay in the wet leaves and just sort of like try to see underneath a mushroom. And like I dare you to get lost in your, in your woes while you're doing that. Like it's, just, it's, impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. Your brain cannot do both things at once. And that can break the physiological processes that are happening, the actual like scientific physiological processes of stress and adrenaline and living in that lizard part of our brains that's just trying to survive. And it can take us out of that and into this beautiful place of calmness and chemical reactions that can then affect the rest of our day. And if that day goes well, then the next day and that week and that month and our relationships and our jobs and our families. I love thinking of it as integrating all those parts in the brain and maybe by being in the moment and being in this tactile sensory area of the forest, maybe you do get to kind of access the amygdala or or the lizard brain in a way that isn't because of imminent death or imminent fear but you're able to kind of dive in there and then bring some of that up to, you know, thinking about what you're touching. You're, I mean, you said it better, but you're kind of integrating all these different areas of your brain through that experience. So uh, here's the thing. We don't even know we, what's happening. It, it, that's exactly. And, and so two things on that. One, sometimes interventions can seem so simple that they seem stupid, like just absolutely stupid. (laughs) I've been in therapy before where my therapist was like, I want you to try this. And I literally rolled my eyes and was like, fine, I'll do it. But it sounds stupid. And then it was really, really impactful because it turns out we do shape so much of reality with our thoughts and thoughts seem really simple and we take them for granted and we often don't even know they're happening. And that's where the automatic unconscious comes in. And then uh, two is we were foragers once upon a time our ancestors 
right. were foragers. They were hunter-gatherers. The people who survived were those people who could recognize um, little tiny details, who, could, who were really good at checking out uh, differences in colors or could tell when a fruit was about to ripen or could tell the difference between this and that. I mean, I'm talking in minute details. Right. Our brains, once upon a time, were absolutely so tuned in to the rhythms of nature, minute differences and detail, um, not to mention looking for danger. You're absolutely going to, there's evidence that suggests today that people with ADHD, it's like an evolutionary advantage. As a matter of fact, yeah, they're noticing people, everything. Those people were going to notice everything faster than everybody else. So right. it's 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 a lot about context, and you you know you talk about corporate culture and what's acceptable, and even in the school systems these days, certain kids are made to feel bad about who they are, but it's about the context and not about who mm. they are. And when we go out into the wilderness, suddenly those components of ourselves make sense. And for example, I have. Um, I work with a condition in myself called hypervigilance. So I'm very, very uh, aware of small changes in environment and in people's behavior because that helped me stay safe when I was a child, helped me predict when maybe a caregiver was going to have a real bad day or a real bad week and I could sort of prepare myself, gave me a sense of safety and control. Well, I can't make that go away. I can't just suppress that. Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> it doesn't work. You don't want to and take it, a drug to try to suppress it, that. Yeah. You don't want to take a drug. You don't want to drink. You don't want to, I mean, right. it'll work for a time, but it exists and it won't go away because what it is, is it's a need. And imagine a child who's needy in some way. They're hungry or they're thirsty. Um, you can ignore them. You can tell them to be quiet. You can tell them to do something else, but they, that need won't go away. And when we, when we do that to ourselves with, with you know, drugs or alcohol or uh, cell phones or social media or whatever it is that we're using to sort of like suppress that need, we are denying ourselves. So when we go out, when I went out in nature and I was feeding this need that I had to be hypervigilant and to notice details and to look for things, it fed that need. And I no longer needed so badly to pay attention to the details in other people's lives or their behavior because I was feeding that need. You were paying attention to the details of mushrooms I, and the forest <laughs> and... That's, yeah. that's a really important conversation to just think about the natural context for most of human history has been humans out in nature. Mm -hmm. So all the development, all the idiosyncrasies, the you know perceived neuroses, all these things, when you place someone out in nature, which is the natural, which is their, their environment that all these things developed in, it, it all makes sense. That's, that's super insightful. We, and I've never thought of it that been, way before. We've been in society for a hot minute. Like... <laughs> Yeah, like like a flicker, you know, like the Industrial Revolution was yesterday. It's been like one minute on the clock, whatever, you know, it's like 1159 to where we are now on the like big maybe clock 20 seconds. History. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. So so we we it's not a cop out to say we, we weren't designed for this world. And the yeah. best thing we can do is to honor ourselves and have compassion for ourselves, even in our most messed up places. Um when when we have addiction in our lives is not to judge ourselves and be harsh and say, well, I shouldn't be that way. We should look at it and go, what am I trying to do for myself with this addiction? What need am I trying to fulfill? You mentioned Gabor Mate before we started talking. That's something that he talks about with regard to addiction. He brings a very 
just deeply humbling, compassionate uh, attitude to the idea of addiction and to dysfunctional behavior in general and to trauma, right. which is that we we truly, truly can heal ourselves. But what it requires first is that we acknowledge ourselves and have compassion and give ourselves grace. The message that I do want to get to people is to is the temptation to judge yourself yeah. and to um, be hard on yourself and to beat yourself up for the way that you are is is sucking so much energy. And we are afraid to give in to the way that we are because it's scary and bad. Um, but truly, I don't think any most people are are bad or scary um and and we're all like i said just tall children and we can have so much <laughs> compassion if we think about ourselves that way that self-love is so important if you're going to project love outward into the world and yeah i think that nature is that perfect arena to inculcate that in us it's clear that we could probably have a whole podcast series with anna talking about psychology and trauma and nature being a tool to work with that. People shouldn't judge themselves for the anxiety they feel or the trauma they've experienced, or it's so important not to judge yourself for it. And then also see just something as simple as getting out in the woods by yourself as being a really effective tool in dealing with that. There's so many layers. And what came up for me when you were talking just now is the dichotomy between wild wilderness nature because that's what nature represents to me is wild and right. control and you said you can't love other people if you don't love yourself and that's very very true it's scary to release control of ourselves and we treat other people the way that we treat ourselves and so if we go to a space where being quote-unquote out of control is the norm Right. That is why it's so therapeutic getting into nature because the rules are different. And when I say getting into nature, it could be anything. It could be sitting um, with your back up against a tree in your backyard with the sun on you um, and listening to the birds. Or it could be anywhere to, you know, being in a completely unexplored portion of some country somewhere, you know. Uh, yes. It, it could be anywhere in between those. It's where you are touching the ground and it feels wild in some sort of way. Feet touching the earth. For me, feet touching the earth is a big part of getting the therapeutic effects. And people who have you know, gone out into nature and done grounding and all the things we're talking about, once you do it and embody it, it becomes part of your practice and you wonder how you ever got by without it. So for anyone who's listening who thinks like, eh, it's like, just go out and do it. You'll see the effects and then you'll this, be preaching it, to us. It goes back to what I said about my experience with therapy and my therapist going, try this and me rolling my eyes and go, Ugh. like I did it. And I was like, oh my gosh, that totally worked. And I told her, and I've told this story a hundred times, like I did not think that was going to work. So I get skepticism. I'm a huge skeptic. I'm a very cynical person, honestly. Like I know I smile a lot, but I am actually like very skeptical person. And I would completely agree with you. Just, just go out and try it. No judgment. Just suspend your judgment for a little while right. and go out and try it. And um, I lived in Brooklyn for a while. You can go, I mean, that's like a pretty urban place. You can yeah. go to Prospect Park and you can touch the trees. I'm, I mean, just don't care what people think of you. Don't, right. you know, like 
narrow your focus. I'm talking narrowing it to like a six inch radius. Like this is what I'm talking about when I talk about connecting to nature is forgetting the world for a minute and just lean in and look at a tree, look at the bark. I don't care if it's dead or it's alive. There is going to be something going on there and feel it and close your eyes and run your hands up and down it. Like that is enough to connect to nature. So it's something you really can do anywhere. Yeah. Wow. This is really, this is really powerful. And I, I definitely think it's something that probably should be explored. Like, I don't know if people have done research about this. I know there's been research done to show the chemical reactions in the brain that occur just from humans putting their hands in the dirt, you know, whether it be gardening or what, you know, so there are physiological changes that happen when we connect with nature. Anyone who's read that book, The Overstory knows that there are things that get released from plants and trees different pheromones and different things in the air that interact yeah. with our system. That um, trees talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's there's so much there that we have yet to explore, but we know it works. Get there, out and enjoy the benefits. Yeah, well, and like you're saying, again, for the skeptics, like there is actual science behind what you just talked about with like as far as the trees talking to each other, chemical, like that is, that's hard science as right. far as trees chemically talking to each other um so i guess what i would say is keep an open mind and there's there's more out there than you might expect everything we've talked about you've had scientific reference points for you've had a more grounded point of view that kind of blends the higher kind of airy sense with the grounded like well here's how it translates i think that's really important to do and i think you do the same thing with mushrooms you have an incredible knowledge of taxonomy properties I mean, all of the scientific aspect of identifying and understanding mushrooms, but then you also have kind of a playful, more airy nature with their personalities, you know, and I guess where does some of that grounded scientific background come from? I know you studied psychology, but as you explore mushrooms and as you explore nature, were there people, groups, things that got you to a place where you really had that foundational knowledge that now you're able to bring to bear kind of effortlessly? Oh, 100%. I have been influenced from the start. When I started posting pictures of mushrooms on Instagram, I literally did it with the mentality of dance like no one's watching. I did not think anyone would give a fudge. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, Like, (laughs) I had one of those, like, personal Instagram accounts for years where I posted pictures of, you know, date nights and my dinner and my pets and my vacations and all that stuff and selfies. Uh, I, for personal reasons, decided to distance myself from that. And um, I kind of was just like, well, screw it. Like, here's a place that I can put all my mushroom pics. So (laughs) didn't think anyone would care. What that led me to was so many important people who I got to connect with online. And now in real life, which is the best part of everything for me. Um, but so as far as people who inspire me, the absolute first person who ever um, inspired me and continues to inspire me to this day is Rachel Zoller, who is Yellow Eleanor. Just when you talk about, she and I are different in the sense that she's she's calmer than I am. We've connected a lot and she honestly has been a great mentor to me since the beginning. Um, started gaining wow. a little bit of attention here and there and she would just sort of come in in the background and give really kind advice. She has the same sort of vibe to her of being really curious. She's a natural born teacher and um, she thinks a lot before she speaks. And that's something that I've tried to integrate into my world. 
I really, really, really admire Rachel um, and I've had the privilege of spending time with her in person. Can't recommend it enough. If you can go to one of her classes or her workshops, please do. I know that right now she's talking about offering online workshops as well. Uh, something to look into. So anyway, so there's Rachel and then there's uh, uh, Leah Bendlin, who's on Instagram as Leah Mycelia, yeah. who is another super humble, but like the incredibly knowledgeable person uh, who was very helpful to me when I was getting started and, and still blows my mind with um, the depth of her knowledge. Um, there's Tug uh, Deleuze, two gnomes. I highly recommend to anyone if they ever get a chance to spend time with Tug in person. He has a Google inside of his head. Yeah, so yeah. He, he does this thing in person where he snaps his fingers a couple times and by the third or fourth time, like he has like a, he has all the information that you're going to need on a mushroom. Like you don't even have to, like sometimes I want to be like, Tug, can you give the rest of us time to figure out what this is? Can we pretend so, like we're discovering something new here <laughs> that we shouldn't just ask he's, you everything? He's, he's just, he's really amazing and he's got a great sense of humor. And then uh, Craig Trester, who is a mutual friend of ours, uh, NYC, NYC in New York City who teaches just an astonishing array of classes. I did a podcast with Craig. It was like you're playing ping pong, but there's like a machine shooting ping pong balls at you. And you're just like trying to keep up for the life of you, both with the pace of it and just the density of information. So yeah, I, I've had a little bit of the, the Craig And then you're just in awe as well. And yeah, also just, yeah. again, like the nicest person, just so sweet. Well, what's, what's interesting though, is he's again, someone who I believe was just within the past like five, six years that he really dove into the world of like the soil web and mycology and everything he talks about. You're the same way. It's just the past few years. I know Tug's been more like 12 years. I think Rachel's probably for a little bit longer too, but it's just that idea that once you commit yourself to this path, it seems like people dive so deep where they suddenly have this intimate knowledge of it. I'm really impressed by it and wonder if it's unique to mushrooms that inspires this kind of passion in people. I want to say, so I met another person named Nova Nova Patch, um, who is obsessed with lichen. And mm. what they said uh, when they were leading a talk was, you guys, uh, this is, we're on the edge of this knowledge and there's not a lot of people studying it and there's so much that's unknown and we finally have the tools to access it and learn about it. And if you want to get in on the front lines of this stuff and if you want right. to like really dive deep, there is so much space for people who are interested like if there's young people or older people it doesn't matter how old you are if you're listening right now and this is something that fascinates you like you can make an actual impact in this world if this is something yeah. you want to study because there's there's not that much competition if you go to a local mycological group there are a lot of younger people there but for the most part this is stuff that was passed down through you know friends and hands-on knowledge for ages because there just wasn't the science to uh, back it up. And it was a really hands-on observational science. And it's becoming much more scientific. I guess that was my big takeaway in speaking to people like yourself. It's not only the exciting potential of fungi, but how that inspires you to get into it and how other people can kind of reach the level of people we're talking about. Just get into it. And we have more tools than ever for you to become part of this wave and, and join the party. It's it's You said it exactly. It's about the curiosity and stepping forward into that because if you do, the world is your pleurotus. I really should say the the world is your ostriatus, but mm. uh, that doesn't have the same ring to it uh, <laughs> because when it comes to mushrooms, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, there is a thing called uh, taxonomy and there is 
binomial nomenclature, which is the naming of fungi. We have the scientific name for things. It's, and it's fancy and it's complicated and it's hard to remember, but it has a purpose. And uh, in Pleurotus australis, like that, that's your oyster mushroom, right? So that's the joke. It's a bad joke. <laughs> uh, Pleurotus means side ear. Side ear, okay. Side ear. So that is the genus, right? So there's a lot of Pleurotus species. And then Ostriatus meaning oyster, oyster-like. And so, so that's the species. Ostriatus is the species. Yeah. Pleurotus is the genus. Coming to grips with understanding why things are the name the way they are. And it gives you a much better understanding to, you know, just interacting with this whole world. You have your kingdom, which is kingdom yeah. fungi. Then you have your phylum, class, order, family, genus and species. Now the binomial nomenclature, Dang. is that mostly genus and species? I just want to give you a real quick because that was good. <laughs> that was really good. Uh, so when it comes to binomial, binomial nomenclature, you nailed it. It's the genus and the species. Okay. Sometimes there's a variety, which you will see. It'll say the genus and the species, and then it'll say var with a, like a, right. with a period. And then it'll say another name after it. Sometimes that name is just a duplicate of the name that came before, which can be confusing. If it helps you think of it this way, taxonomy is just a way of organizing information. Yeah. In preparing for a conversation, I kind of realized how much work I wanted to do here to really get a better understanding of what all these things are. Because I know kingdom fungi, and then I know the naming structures for genus and species, but that's like my universe. And in between that, you have all these other classifications of organization. And I know that bisidiomycete is the one that actually makes the fruiting bodies that we all love as mushrooms. Where does that fall into our little chain there? Is that the phylum, the class? So let's do an example, because I like to be 100% transparent all the time. I don't just, I'm not Tug. I don't know all this stuff off the top of my head. <laughs> There's absolutely nothing wrong with going to your books. There's absolutely nothing wrong with going to the internet. To me, right. knowing how to use knowledge is is as much or even more important than having the knowledge because we do live in a world where we have the knowledge available to us and just not everybody has the ability to memorize things. So let's do Amanita muscaria. Let's do that one. You mentioned Basidia mycota. That would be the phylum. Okay. So the kingdom, as we know, is fungi or as some people like my folks over at New Moon uh, Mycology Summit call it the queendom, the fungal queendom, because why oh, I not? Like it. Yeah, yeah, why not? So uh, the phylum is the Basidiomycota. You have um, Ascomycota. You've got some other options there. Um, there's a, right. there's a lot. Let's just put it that way. There's a lot. Yeah, fungi <laughs> is a huge universe. Aside from just the mushroom fruit bodies, we know we have mushrooms. I mean, fungi living in our stomach, yeast, all that stuff. But yeah, so then Basidiomycota, where you make that divergence between fruit bodies and non-fruit bodies, happens at phylum. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then you have some of these other ones, class, order, family. Class, order, family. So this is where it just keeps getting more specific. And honestly, right. it would be beyond most people to know this information. Like it'd yeah. be a very like beautiful mindy type thing of just like, you'd have to have like a very encyclopedic knowledge. And to just sort of make people feel better about it, it changes a lot. Generally, what's happening right now is that fungi are being reclassified genus-wise. That's that's mm. the most common thing I'm seeing. But they're also being reclassified according to uh, order or class sometimes. So for example, one mushroom that sort of like bucks the trend, well, a lot of mushrooms buck the trend, but like one in specific that I like to post about is Calistoma cinnabrinum, which is the stocked puffball in aspic. It's also known as hot lips. 
Oh, which okay. I, which I find really offensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, for those who don't know, I think aspic is like a European thing. It's like jelly. It's like jello. So picture like at full maturity, it is a red globe is okay. the fruit body. It's on this stalk that looks like it's covered in cooked spaghetti squash. Picture maybe like an eyeball that's re- yeah. ripped out of someone's head, but it's red. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then at the at the top of the of the globe of the fruit body is this little um it's called a stoma, which is Greek for mouth, which is where it gets its common name, hot lips. And it's red and it's this opening. And if you uh, were to squeeze the globe of this fungus, white just just looks like baby powder comes out. It's all the spores. It's incredible. It's beautiful. Wow. And around the base of this mushroom is what looks like pomegranate seeds, which are the uh, the outer coating of the fun- fungus. Because when it's small, like it, it rises up out of the ground out of a gelatinous goo. It's very cool. Gnarly. It's one of my favorite alien. mushrooms. Truly alien. You yeah, find those it, where you are. Yes, they're very common. They like to grow on mossy banks of like uh, pathways. They really like that. Um, they're they're pretty common where I live, and they can grow in groups. And they come out of the ground. They emerge out of the ground, and they ultimately get a few inches up off the ground. And the way they're designed is that if rain hits them, the rain, the impact of the rain, or maybe a fox running by or something like that, is going to push the spores out. And right, they're going right. to go on the wind. And the whole reason it's on a stalk up off the ground in the first place is to give it more lift. So the closer it, it is to the ground, there. the less, exactly, the less far the spores are going to travel. It's really fascinating. Now, why uh, is this one jumping around? Have evolved. Why, why is this one jumping around in terms of the naming structure? And then we can get into totally. how do they pick these names? Why would they call it, you know, when they're, when they're deciding genus and species, what properties are they looking at in the mushroom to figure out where it fits? <laughs> So to answer that, you're going to have to ask me to explain why, how white guys 200 years ago thought, which I'm not so good at, but I will do my best. I will do my best to get, put myself in someone else's shoes. To put shoes. your 200 year old white guy shoes. <laughs> so without like a lot of cynicism. So this fungi, the reason I mentioned this one, fungus, mm. gosh, I always do that. That's my bad. That's like my thing that I do. I say fungi when I mean fungus. So that's why I say mushroom sometimes instead. It's just easier. Anyways. Uh, this mushroom, you would look at it and you would think it was gastroid. Gastroid meaning gastric, right? Or right. gastropub. Those are all words that you might recognize as having to do with food. Why? Because stomach. Gastro yeah. is, I don't know if it's Greek or Latin at this moment, um, for stomach. So uh, gastroid fungi are belly or stomach-like. So think puffballs, think earth stars, think anything that has sort of like this like round protuberance that looks yeah. like a... Like looks a, like a cute little like belly. belly. Like a cute little belly. Yeah. And of course, they're, they're called commonly stalked puffballs. And they share so many characteristics of puffballs, like, I don't know, being shaped like a ball and puffing spores. <laughs> uh, but Seems genetically, yeah, right? Like, so genetically though, however, which is the new world that we're living in when it comes to taxonomy, is they are actually in the same family as bolete mushrooms. Wow. Okay. Even though they don't have pores, they don't, I mean, they don't share a lot of the yeah. Same properties of bolides. Okay, that's yeah. Take a That's minute. a little counterintuitive. <laughs> it's there's a, that's kind of the nature of how things are going right now, and there there's already a feeling in the mushroom community, depending on where you're at, 
of people sort of feeling a little resentful about scientific names. So there, mm. if you go on a Facebook page, which I don't for my mental health, but if you go on a, <laughs> a Facebook page having to do with mushrooms, there's just going to be a group of people who are like poo-pooing scientific names. They don't understand it. They just want to use the common names for everything. Um, and I and I understand that. It's, it definitely is a lot easier on some levels. Um, but it's also potentially more dangerous because mm. a lot of things can have the same common name um, and you can't really get down to specifics. And that, again, I want to hammer home is what scientific names are all about. They're all about pinpointing and getting more and more and more specific, which is why we have specific epithets it's always more useful to, for me to have a framework of dealing with something as vast as the kingdom fungi. I'm never going to memorize every single, even the <laughs> common names, I'm not going to memorize. So it's helpful to have a framework of understanding kind of derivatives, how the name, nomenclature works, why certain words are derived to have a better sense of dealing with, you know, unknown mushrooms or new, or, or just having a basis for even hearing a scientific name and knowing where it might fall in your head in the grand scale of mushrooms. So I'm a big believer in frameworks and that's why this is, so fascinating to me. So to me, it would seem more intuitive to name things based on physical characteristics. How do you pick the physical characteristics? What's important? Yeah. So, so mushroom taxonomy has gone like this. Originally, they just looked at it with their naked eyes and they said, wow, these ones have gills. These ones don't. Uh, these ones grow on trees, these ones grow in the ground, and they classify things that way. And I don't know exactly how many categories there were, but there were much fewer categories back then. Right. And then they sort of evolved that a little bit further, and they said, well, wait a minute, these two mushrooms both have gills, but this one has white spores, and that one has brown spores. And so they sort of made subgroups and deeper classifications. And then microscopy came along. They were able to look at the spores at a microscopic level, and they were like, wait a minute, even amongst the ones with brown spores that already fit all these characteristics, some of them are more elliptical shaped, or some of them have these um, spikes on them, or they look different microscopically. Right. Um, or they could look at the cells and just tell differences that way. So they just kind of, it's a process of them being able to tell them apart more and more and more in a detailed way. And now we're in the world of genetic analysis and uh, chemical analysis where they can even go further than that, which is how they came to that information with Calistoma cinnabrunum is to say, yeah, it totally looks like a puffball. <laughs> like it 100% does, but technically it's more genetically closely related to a bolete. And that affects, what do we say, was class order? Yeah, something like that. Boletacea uh, family. I guess family. that would be okay. family. So yes, they did originally start out naming things according to how they look. They also name things according to who found them sometimes. So you have um, Frost's Bolete, which is the candy apple bully. It's the beautiful one it's, uh, that we like to post. It's got these gorgeous golden gotation droplets. It's got a highly reticulated red candy apple stem. The pores are red, the cap is red, and the whole thing is edible. So it's a very special mushroom. They grow yeah. here. And that is, uh, well, it used to be a Pseudoporus frostii. And so Frost is the guy's last name. So they throw on a couple eyes and now it sounds Latin. <laughs> and what they did, and what that's called is Latinization. <laughs> Latinization. So if someone yeah. discovered it, they have an ego about it. It's a beautiful mushroom that you can what? eat. And they're like, I want my name attached to this one. Yeah. Occasionally someone will name it after their wife, which I think is very sweet. But for the Good most move. part, you're <laughs> maybe, maybe they did something wrong. For the most part, they are definitely named after what they appear to look like. Now, there are some, f to me, it's endlessly fascinating. So as you know, I do a little feature 
on Mondays sometimes called Edda Monday, where I take a name and I break it down. A big part of that was to take the stigma out of the scientific names because it seems really scary and it seems like it's just for some people. And And you already mentioned it really helps to have that framework. It helps to have that understanding. And while it can be a little bit intimidating, it doesn't have to. It can be fun and we can be curious about it. And so I thought up at a Monday as that sort of, with that intention and to sort of make connections um, between ideas we already know and we already feel really comfy with and words we already know. And when you look at that mushroom, your brain will just sort of be like, oh, I know a word associated that's close to this. I remember what this is called or I remember the genus that this is in if you can't even remember the specific epithet. So for example, there are, um, here, I have a list here somewhere that I wanted to reference. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, bring up funny, surprising, ridiculous, cool (laughs) names. I'm trying to recreate at a Monday because it is so cool. And I do, I do think that's one of the great things that has inspired me to look into this more was literally you doing that and breaking down where these words come from. Cause language is inherently fascinating. Obviously etymology is a science unto itself, where these things come from, what they mean. And, you know, it's also a chance for you to start learning if you're interested in the mushrooms and you get into the etymology of mushrooms and start learning scientific names, helps your foraging, helps your understanding of kingdom fungi, also low key gets you a better understanding of different human languages, especially, you know, Western European language roots that help you interact with language more effectively in general. Not even just Western European. So Indo-European, which encompasses 64 different languages on multiple continents, they all share a common hypothetical root known as PIE, which is Proto-Indo-European. It's a hypothetical theorized language that they believe. Kind of like an Ur language. Exactly. That unites... So all of these languages have these words that seem so similar. Uh, and mm. they're like, well, they must have all come from the same place. Um, so that's PIE for you. And that wow. ultimately, uh, when, when it comes to scientific names, yes, they're often Latin, but they're also often Latinized. And mm. turns out Latin like to really just sort of like steal or borrow. They say borrow really, but they like to borrow words from Greek and from other languages um, because obviously Latin is not the first language that ever existed. So that's kind of the reason that I try to move away from saying the Latin name of mushrooms. And I try to focus on saying the scientific name or binomial nomenclature, binomial meaning two names by bicycle uh, nomenclature or nomial, both coming from the root of nom, which if you speak French or Spanish word. So, and then, and and that's what it's called. Exactly. Name word. So it's the naming of things with two names. (laughs) It's a little redundant. Also, I think another benefit of learning about etymology is it um, it cuts down the divides between us. Like it makes the mm. world so much smaller because it turns out we we all speak different languages, but we can recognize roots of words in another language. Like, oh, oh, that's our word. Like, I get that. I know. I like <laughs> you. You have more in common because of that, and it just sort of like breaks down the us and them factor a little bit. Yeah, and it's another example where frameworks are so effective at just grappling with you know what is a huge universe of all these different languages. If you can get to the heart framework. Now, this PIE you're referencing, does that kind of predate Latin, predate Greek? Is it the uniter of all those theoretically? Yes, absolutely. Wow. It is the, I think it's something like theorized at like 10,000 BC uh, would be the origin of PIE. So like parallel to like, I mean, that's before hieroglyphs. So, I mean, we're talking ancient yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, absolutely, and it is something that none of us would 
ever recognize now. And it's, of course, it's, again, it's theorized. So they don't know how it's pronounced, but they can take all these commonalities and they can kind of, there are these really cool maps online that you can look up, uh, like flowcharty type things where you can see how all these different languages have all these different words for mother or foot, for example. And you can kind of see how they all come from this one random root. And it's, it's fascinating. It's very uniting. It kind of, you know, it makes you feel like you're so much more connected to the whole world. And, and a fun thing that I love, one of my favorite things about etymology is finding out that a word does not mean what you thought it meant at all. <laughs> or <laughs> yeah. or that, it, that it came to mean what you think it means by association. So for example, gallerina. So gallerina marginata is like a very toxic little cute mushroom. I think that most right. people... Most people learn about pretty early on. It has a like a bell-shaped cap. It's brown. It grows out of wood. And, you know, people sort of learn about it because it may or may not to some people look like an edible mushroom. So gallerina comes from the ancient Greek word for weasel. Weasel. Now, why do you think that would be? Why, why would they name it after a weasel? I don't know. Weasels <laughs> are cute little guys, but I don't know why Is you it- think- yeah, why? Color maybe? Or? <laughs> right, you might think like, oh, it's brown. Okay, it's a weasel. But no, so it's what it is, is there, <laughs> was there was, yeah, it'll kill you. Um, there were helmets that the ancient Greek used to wear um, made out of weasel skin, weasel hide. I don't, again, and that's a whole other thing. But, um, and the mushroom caps in their bell shape sort of resembles these helmets. And these helmets came wow. to be known as galera because they were made out of weasel skin. Um, right. And so now we call these mushrooms gallerina because they, which is diminutive, the ina or ita or any of those suffix on a uh, noun denotes diminutive, smaller. Smaller, yeah. Yeah, so like burrito is like a little... <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Or like... <laughs> a little <yeah>. donkey. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so that's just like a really simple, you know, from here to there explanation of it. But it's just, it, to me, so it's funny to me because people can be very precious about language and they can associate language so deeply with identity and again, create an us and them. You know, we speak English here, but it's like, where did English come from? And mm. how many of the words that we think are ours have only existed for a very short period of time. And they, you know, we can't get too attached to ideas because they change over time and they're alive. And, and that's, it's a really beautiful thing. And it's, it's fascinating. And to me, this is like a little way of learning about how um, it's okay for things to change and it's okay for things to evolve (laughs) and how everything is really connected. It gets, it definitely gets back to connection. It totally fits with your background in understanding how humans work, how our culture works, to have a natural fascination with the language that we use to communicate and then blending that with your fascination with the natural world to bring it back, to apply it to the natural world and see where these words come from, you know, whether it be weasel helmets or <laughs> something else. I mean, it, it's something that you're kind of uniquely in a great place to explore. And I'm really glad you brought this forward because I think it has, you know, it's something I talk with a lot of other mushroom people about, it gets us all interested and gets us all inspired in language. Uh, so it's, it's a, a fun connection between the natural world and the human world and really deeply exploring that connection and thereby exploring some greater connections outside of that. Yeah, uh, it, ta- it, takes the, it takes the fear factor and the intimidation out of it for me. Like, do you want to hear a funny one? Yes, I want to hear funny <laughs> ones, ridiculous ones. That was my next. I want to hear about all the funny mushroom names like, you know, Hot Lips, Weasel Helmet. No, we're just at the start. Like, we need to really get into some funny ones. Um, so 
Stinkhorns. I have a special place in my yes. heart for stinkhorns. And the genus name for a lot of stinkhorns is phallus. Do we all know what? Well, yeah, I think we all know what phallus is. And I think when you see a stinkhorn, I think when you see a stinkhorn, you're like, oh, oh yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, oh, I get it. So, um, Phallus impudicus is one of the um, stinkhorns that we commonly see. It's actually quite beautiful if you're into that sort of thing, which I am. Um, flies also think it's beautiful. So if I were to just translate phallus impudicus just simply for you, it would be it would be shameful swelling. Ah, phallus impudicus. <laughs> Shameful swelling. Hmm. <laughs> so, no, uh, you know, that goes against my whole no judgment vibe. Um, well, I think it's some slang I'm going to start using out in the world. You know? <laughs> oh, I absolutely love the idea of insulting people by using Latin. Like, I just yeah. think it's the best. So, so, if you think about it, again, to connect these ideas and get them cemented in your brain, we, we know what it means to be impudent. Right, yeah. like yep. you're being, you're being kind of like disrespectful or rude, um, and we know that phallus means is associated with um, penises these days. But originally, the original meaning of it was a swelling, which so you can see how like oh, how huh. of at which you know we understand the association there with the body part, but you right. can see how a a word that was associated with an action becomes yeah. associated with a noun. Or vice versa. That happens a lot with etymology. Is you you can take a word and it can just it can just mean something completely different based on the association that you have with it. Another one of my favorites, one of my favorite etymondes that I ever did was um, with scleroderma septentrionale, uh, which is a which is an earth ball scleroderma. Um, sclero meaning hard, derma meaning skin. Um, so they're like the poison skin puffball is a scleroderma. Um, or, or this one in particular grows on Cape Cod and it's, it's very yellow and it has this very tall stalk because, it, again, it has to push up through the dunes and get as high as it can so that when it releases its spores, they will travel as far as they can. And this edamunde took me a really long time because septentrionale is like, what does that mean? Um, sept meaning seven, tentrionale having to do with oxen. So seven oxen. oxen. So I'm like, well, okay. what? Is so sometimes you're doing these. I'm, I'm researching these, and I'm like, <laughs> okay. Or maybe so like where someone used something made out of oxen or something that that well, traces back to or something. Well, exactly. So it, like it yeah. could be that. So so that's yeah. kind of the challenge when you're doing these things is that um, mm -hmm. is that you come to a definition and you have to go, well, if I. I dig deeper, will I find out more? And so, so with this particular Edamunde, I dug deeper and I found out that this is based off of a set of stars. Uh, uh, it's not quite a constellation. It's a small group of stars um, that resembles oxen. So seven, seven oxen. But what that, what that, what that meant is these oxen turn around the north this constellation that looks like oxen turn around the north star so they do this turning action the actual root of tentrionale is to turn or to thresh what this signifies is that they turn around the north star so septentrionale has come to mean northern oh wow so they because took this they took this uh, uh this astronomical sign astrological astronomical sign turning around the north star and that translates into okay now this word means north exactly they pulled seven oxen into north that's 
So yeah, so they took so many layers of meaning. Um, other countries call the um, the asterism, which is a small group of stars that's not a constellation. Asterism. We I think we call it the Big Dipper, and I think the UK calls it the Plow, and then other cultures <laughs> call it some like the Wheelbarrow or whatever, um, the Great Wagon. Um, and, a, and a wagon is towed by oxen. So there's just right. all these connections and all these associations. Um, but the point is that the Big Dipper or the, 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 great ox, uh, the great wagon turns around the North Star. So it's associated with the North. So this particular puffball is called Scleroderma septentrionale because it grows in the North. And there is a Southern puffball, which is <laughs> septentrionale meridionale, which meridian you would recognize as having to do with the like the meridian line or like the equator or something like that. Right. So South of the equator. So there's just, I guess my point is there's so much information just packed into so these. much. And there's stories. I mean, there's stories yeah. and mythologies and astrological information or asterisms packed in there. I mean, you giving me a small window into studying these roots waterfalls into so much more like i want to start exploring like what every single word means now and like where some of these things come from because it's a fascinating story it's almost a story of human culture and how we move and gives you maybe some insight in how people decide things you know what was important maybe that asterism and you know that position of the north star and obviously the stars were of much more importance to ancient peoples and it kind of all shows up in that name where something as universal as the direction of north is associated with an astrological sign that they thought was pulling the North Star. Like it gives you yeah. insight into ancient minds and history. It's really blowing my mind, I, I got to admit. <laughs> and that actually takes me to a good place. I was going to say we're just a little over an hour now. It was going to take me to a place of like future plans. What next for you? I mean, I know on we've covered some huge issues and kind of scratched the surface. And I said before, you're a wellspring or, you know, you'd say you're a deep well of all this information. We're just getting going. So are you going to now write a book about both <laughs> two books, two books about how nature can heal trauma and the therapy of nature? And then I also want a book about etymology specifically of mushrooms. Any plans like that in the works or any anything you've got coming up? So uh, no book plans, although I think that an etymology book pertaining to mushrooms would be really Amazing. fun. I know that there is yeah. I know that there's one out there. But again, it stops at like Septentrionale means north. It doesn't sort of go further than that. Oh, that's a, that's not even um, the story. There's a scratch of the surface. Yeah, I just want to get in there. Uh, so that would be that would be really fun if that was something that people would be interested in. Maybe people can like let you know if they would be interested in that, and I would pursue that. Um, I have been talking to Britt Bunyard about maybe submitting a little bit of writing for Fungi Magazine. I don't know if you subscribe to that. But that's I, one good publication. I love Fungi Magazine, and Britt's a cool <laughs> and guy. Brit, have, yeah, have you met Brett? He's, yeah. he's a trip. <laughs> yeah, Brett, Brett's great. Yeah. Um, and then as far as anything else, uh, you know, I don't have any big, I have some ideas, but I don't have any plans for those ideas just yet, aside from potentially relocating to the Pacific Northwest. Oh, of course. You have to go to the Mecca where it's mushroom <laughs> season all year round. I feel like that is the next step in my in my mushroom journey. Once I do that, you know just spending as much time as I can with mushroom people in real life and learning from them. Because as you said before, we are on the horizon and there is, there is more to be learned from individuals right now, I think, than there is to be from books and internet, which is a weird place to be. Right. It's one of those unique things where it is still very much an oral tradition and, and yes. very much the general knowledge 
has so much gradient, so much gray area, so much, takes that personal context of people having processed the general information, put it into practice, and then you get that real knowledge. One of the people that I listen to a lot, one of my old teachers who I've never met often said, to do to know and not to do is not to know. So you Ooh. need to go with the people who have gone and like embodied it. And I think mushroom foraging and mushrooms in general are one of those things because it is a new science. We are on the frontiers, but also because it's such a mysterious organism. I mean, there's so much that needs to be translated through actual lived experience. Uh, and, and, you know, personality wise, I think a lot of people learn better going out with with other people and forging friendships and bonds that kind of commit things to memory more readily than going through a big book. I will say that the nice thing about going out alone is that you can go at your own pace. And for some mm. people, especially people who are just getting started, I know I hear frequently from people that it's there's an intimidation factor or mm. even, even people I know who I really respect, who I think know a lot, um, have this idea that if they're going to meet up with other people, that it's going to somehow be like a, a, not a competition, but that they need to show up and show off their knowledge. And it's absolutely not that way. I have spent so much time in the past year connecting with and spending time in the real world with other mushroom folks and lichen folks and entomologists and birders and things like that. And we actually spend very little time trading knowledge because there's just no point. Like we'll go out and we'll be fascinated. And, and when we're out in the forest with super knowledgeable people, um, they're doing exactly the same thing that an, a newbie is doing. They're getting, they're just, it's, it's that, that fascination, that curiosity factor. And then you kind of can go home and get out your books and get on the internet and, and take out your photos. Photos are super important. Um, that's yeah. another thing that I potentially would love to do is um, teach people about mushroom identification using photography. Um, because the season is only so long and <laughs> yeah. you, you can take a couple of pictures or whatever and go home and think you've thought of everything and you and then get to your book and you're like god dang it i did not take a picture of the face of that amanita well i think that's or... really important people don't know what <laughs> what the best pictures are to take to yeah. really do a good identification i'm sure you get the people sending a picture of just the top of the mushroom it's like <laughs> it doesn't really dead help. mushrooms is my favorite yeah. like do you know what this is i'm like yeah dead uh, <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah it just i think if there's anything i want to bring to the table going forward and what I hope to have communicated thus far is that being curious is enough and being enthusiastic mm. is enough. And, and my motto is always be looking, always be learning because there's always more to learn, especially when it comes to mycology and not to be intimidated. Yeah. I mean, guess you'll run into some people in your life, no matter where you are, who are know-it-alls or whatever, but the vast majority, if not everyone I've met in this community has been really kind and really compassionate. And it's really not about what you know. It's more about staying excited and staying open and um, wanting to learn more and connecting. A beautiful message. Absolutely beautiful <laughs> message. And I think, it, again, it's about connection and uniting rather than dividing. And that that gulf sometimes between the novice and the expert enthusiasm may be, your, may be the best bridge. And then the final question any mushroom that you just love to find and why it doesn't have to be a favorite. It could be for any reason you love just eating it with your eyes or you love eating it with your belly, but a mushroom you love and, and why you like it. I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't really love to eat mushrooms. What? I know. There's no way. She must. I don't really. I used to have a segment called uh, skeptical taste test, which I'll revive once there's mushrooms again, but it was my way of, 
um, holding myself accountable. Like I did it, quote unquote, did it for science. I would, <laughs> I would eat new mushrooms that I really just didn't want to eat. I was like, oh, right. I would just kind of be like, oh, I'm going to eat this and I'm going to tell you what it's like. Um, so yeah, I, I find them more fascinating than delicious, but oh gosh, there's, um, this is a really difficult, this is like you're asking me to choose which child I like to a hang favorite, out. I know. And that's why I used to ask the question, what's your favorite mushroom? Now I'm just like, any mushroom you love, it could change in five minutes. Okay. But just a really cool one and, and why you like it. A really cool one and why I like it. Well, I already went into Calistoma cinnaburnum, so I'm not going to go back into that one. Yeah, we burned through uh, hot lips and some other ones. but <laughs> Burned through hot lips. Give me, oh, 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 uh, Gyroporus cyanescens is like one of my all-time favorite mushrooms. To find that is the blueing bolete. It is this, oh. um, it's also called the cornflower bolete, and it grows in my area predictably in the same place every year. And it is, if you want to picture it, is a bolete, and it has this sort of like matted, cap that looks a little bit like wet wool that's been pressed down and it's in it's it's pale tan or almost like camel colored um or like almost whitish sometimes and then it has a white thick stipe uh and it has whitish pores as well and so it's kind of something you would just think like whatever but if you cut this mushroom open it turns the most breathtaking color of cerulean blue or cyan mm. which is where the cyan essence comes from gyroporus it is incredible to look at it's got a, a hollow um stipe you cut it open and it's full of this cottony white material that also turns bright blue every single part of this mushroom turns this gorgeous deep blue sometimes it turns a little pink on the way to blue or sometimes it fades to pink it's incredible it also has super yellow um spores and it's just it's just incredible oh and you can eat it too wow all right that's that's my new favorite mushroom <laughs> Gyroporus cyanescence. That's my new favorite mushroom as well. Well, and that one, I believe I've seen it on your page. When you cut it, it's fast too. The it's color changes. It's super fast. Super fast. It's super fast and it stays until you cook it. Truly, or whatever. truly a piece of art. I mean, truly yep. a piece of natural art. Thank you so much for taking the time, Anna. This has been a really insightful podcast. We've covered a lot of things aside from just wild foraging and mushrooms, which obviously I talk with a lot of people about. And you bring kind of these new angles and these new way of looking at things and really areas to contextualize how some of this might be useful to us, some of this knowledge we're talking about. And uh, yeah, I just really appreciate you taking the time. This is a, this is a pleasure. Well, it's been a huge honor for me. I've had to resist the urge to ask you questions about your life the entire time.